Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. Okay, here we are. Those of you who were with us last week and are following our progression sequentially, this is the promised episode where Colin and I have a uh, in-depth discussion on the subjects that were covered in the last episode. Those of you who did not hear the previous episode, you might want to check it out. I decided to call this episode Tuning In and Dropping Out, which are terms that we never actually used while we were talking, but it seemed to me that kind of summed up what's going on here, because we are all born into a particular world. We have a set of family conditions and social conditions that were adapted to very early on, and then we uh, come into contact with other ideas, other ways of doing things, and we have to kind of consider, well, is, uh, is our way of doing things the way I should continue to do things? Should I readapt and, and make changes? And there's a kind of tuning in process that's involved there, where you're getting a, a greater sense and you're kind of of what's going on in the world, and you're honing in on what uh, what you feel is the way that you should go. Uh, you could call that kind of, you know, Joseph Campbell's Follow Your Bliss, perhaps. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it would be uh, from a more kind of pragmatic point of view, what's the best way forward for your success or health or something like that. There's many different ways that we can tune in. Uh, You can say tuning in would have to do with something beyond just material concern, some kind of grander concept of what it is that's happening, tuning into finding meaning in life. And then the dropping out part is, well, deciding to leave the way that things were being done before. There were many traditional societies with very specific ways of doing things. And we now have this kind of collective mainstream that has its own set of rules and standards. You could say that to some extent the grip that the old way of doing things has been loosened. But that really when it comes down to it, the mainstream is still a very powerful force, even though it's no longer associated with the traditions, it still has an incredible amount of power. But there have been a lot of alternatives that have come up over the decades since the cultural revolutions, you could say. And as a consequence of that, we have this kind of smorgasbord of options for those who are you know, more or less adventurous to try something different with their lives. Anyway, that's what this is all about. I hope you find it an interesting conversation. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to have the conversation. I've actually listened to all of your podcasts at this point. So wow. I wish I could yeah. say the same of all of your videos. I've watched a bunch of them. I uh, well, I certainly wouldn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I can't believe you listened to all of our podcasts, but... Um, that's great. That's well. They were they were quite good, and I resonate with um, both you and Jude. 
Judah with what you say. So both of you kind of speak from two different parts of me, it feels like. So um, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, a fascinating great. thing to listen to. So we, we can just uh, run this as a conversation and whatever comes up, if you have questions, if I have questions, I think we can pretty much just uh, freewheel it. Okay. So I feel like um, I like the idea of kind of just winging it, but I also would like to at least talk a little bit about uh, what you said in your response. And I also, you know, I actually kind of suspect that it will use up the entire time. I don't, I don't know that for sure. I mean, you and I have never spoken, but based on how things go with me when I'm talking with people who can uh, talk about these type of things, uh, yeah, I suspect that will use up the entire time. That could well be. And if uh, you feel like doing an additional episode to branch out into other territory, that would be great too. Yep, that sounds good. So uh, do you have a um, a starting point that you'd like to enter the fray with? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, basically, I don't remember your exact question, but it was based, I think it was along the lines of what am I trying to do with all that I'm doing? What, what's the message that you want to convey? What's the most important thing yeah. you want to tell people? Because you're offering yourself to the world, which in some respects, mm -hmm. all of us who are online creating content, we're offering ourselves to the world in one way or another. Yeah. So, um, I really felt a great direct earnestness and spiritual intention in what you were saying. And so I was just curious what your kind of fundamental orientation was about and what it is that that led you to want to offer. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to what I would call human potential. I mean, I get that wording from um, Mark Atkinson. He has a, he has a coaching basically kind of a training system and uh, he calls them human potential coaches. And I just like, I really love that. Uh, phrasing because it's you know it's talking about not just on the individual individual level what can we each become but also as a whole what, what what can we become and so my my sense is I mean I've come to believe that if human if humanity is going to survive the situation that we are in um, then we we first have to reach potential as individuals and then our cup will spill over and. Uh, everything else will just kind of follow after, I think. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting uh, set of issues that come up. So one of the first things I gravitate towards is the situation we're in. So mm -hmm. that seems to me to suggest uh, what I think most people would agree upon right now is that we're in some kind of a crisis and it, it's happening on many, many different levels. Yep. And so part of the, you could say, rising to the occasion is to do our best, to be our best in what seems to be a uh, extraordinarily challenging time. Yeah. Probably one which will get more challenging. <laughs> I agree, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so... Then the question becomes, well, can we get a real sense of what it is that we're heading towards? 
and what kind of realistic preparations make sense. The sense that I have is that what we're heading towards is something that is equivalent to a crisis in evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we aren't able to somehow or another um, I'm not sure how to characterize this. I don't think we could say restore balance within the ecological systems because the idea of balance in um, in the ecosphere is probably a misguided concept. It's too dynamic. Well, it's always it's it's always dynamic, but there are you know wide you, know, you can go way off balance to one side or another, which is out of balance with that dynamic balance. Does that make well, yeah, sense? Yeah, that, that's the, the kind of irony of it, is that it does seem like there's an incredible resiliency, but at the same time, it's incredibly delicate. <laughs> you could say that yeah. there's resiliency when it comes to life, but when it comes mm-hmm. to a good life in particular, um, what we might consider the type of life that would allow us to reach our full potential, that's a relatively delicate balance that needs to be struck, you know, sort of the the Maslow hierarchy needs type of thing. Um, So, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, with the, I mean, in terms of the human situation, I kind of see it as going in two directions and I think it will go in both directions Mm. and we'll basically see, you know, maybe it, maybe both directions will coexist and maybe uh, one will wipe out the other. But uh, I think one direction is basically, you know, large groups of humanity accept, basically give up responsibility for themselves, allow an outside power, maybe the collective to just make decisions for them and become like an ant colony or a bee, a, you know, a beehive or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I personally have no objection with that as long as it's voluntary participation and no one is forced to do it. Um, and then the other side would be kind of focusing on individualism, uh, which is what I feel like I am uh, kind of kind of putting my flag on that side mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what feels right to me. And that's the where I want to go. And, uh, <laughs> and I think a lot of other people want that too. And I actually believe that that is... I do believe that is the brighter path for humanity. It feels the the ant colony to me feels dark, and the individualism, not not just pure like selfishness, but where we all are just thriving and again spilling our cups over into one another's, and um, it's just a, a beautiful existence. For I mean, of course, there will always be troubles, but I mean, relative to maybe our current situation or possible situations we may find ourselves in, I think it will be pretty, pretty glorious. Well, I think that uh, there's an awful lot to unpack here. So let's see if we can delve into into some of the territory that you're mapping out. Cool. The, the metaphor with the insects, I think is really relevant. And my sense is that the, evolutionary process that we're currently going through is pretty much exactly the same as what the insects went through. That you had a successful strategy that produced very large populations, which then had to be managed because they were 
getting unwieldy and difficult to manage. So anytime you have a very large population, there's a whole set of issues that start to come up. There's this similar pattern that occurred very early on in Earth's history, apparently, uh, or at least it's a theory that this is what occurred. Lynn Margulis, Mm -hmm. she was someone who studied microorganisms. She was Carl Sagan's wife, I believe. And uh, she theorizes that the first and most successful organism on planet Earth was anaerobic bacteria, which at one time covered the entire surface of the Earth and which produced as effluents the oxygen that we breathe now today, which, like all effluents, was toxic to them and caused them a great deal of grief. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Fundamentally um, forced them into evolving into eukaryotic cells where there was essentially a mitochondria that was an... uh, uh, a remnant of the archaic bacteria that had burrowed into its neighbor. So it sort of used itself as raw material to produce this new form of life. Um, Which became us. Yeah. I mean, basically we're all we're kind of like a spacesuit for them. Yeah. We're yeah. all, we're all, um, I guess to some extent this interfaces with the whole selfish gene concept that, there's a, uh, a strategy for managing the maintenance of these cells, essentially. And we're yeah. just a very elaborate system for doing that basic function. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I agree with you. I think that's a repeating pattern, and it will likely happen with humanity. I mean, it's happening before our eyes. The Internet yeah. is the, the neuronal system. But uh, I feel like there's two different ways that can look. There's... There's the one where people are forced to participate by the members of the organism. And there's one where members don't have to participate, but they therefore give up all the benefits of participation, which may be survival, right? Well, we could say that the body... I'm fine with that situation. Yeah, I think that the, the, the problem is that it's all a matter of point of view. So from the point of view of a body, every cell is a member until it isn't. And when it isn't, it's considered a cancer, you know. So there's actually well, some evidence to yeah, suggest well that cancers are reverting back to a, um, a a way of using energy that predates the ATP cycle. So that uh, yeah, I would see I would see that as different than a situation where, a, let's say, a, a mitochondria didn't want to be a part of my body. Now at this point. That's not that's not an option that couldn't happen, but maybe earlier on in, in this, it it was a choice that it had. It could leave, right? But the cancer is an example of someone basically objecting and then destroying the system from within, which is causing harm. So, I mean, the body right. would be right to destroy it at that point. Although, yeah, there so there is this kind of mutual respect thing that's kind of fundamental to maintaining peace. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's a great way of looking at it because a lot of people are really freaked out by the kind of totalitarian um, implications of the technology and um, the kinds of social memes and phenomena that are currently happening. So there's a tendency to get 
violent, I guess you could say, or, or angry. And that, that anger and fear, I think, uh, can often escalate into violence. My way of thinking of it is that bees are actually great. You know, I love bees. We really rely on bees. They do a wonderful thing within the, you know, they, they occupy an extremely important niche within the ecosystem. We might reasonably hope that whatever the, I'm kind of assuming it's going to be an artificially, artificial intelligence organized humanity. That's mm-hmm. a sense of where it's heading. Like, yeah. Or, or like Cyborgian. Yeah. Something like I think that. It'll be interesting mix of those things. So it, I think that there's a good chance that somewhere down the line that will occupy an important ecological niche. Now, whether or not those within the hive mind would adopt the same forgiving attitude to those of us who have stepped outside is another question (laughs) that I'm somewhat concerned about. Right. But, but that's the, I mean, that's for me, the only, only real concern. Yeah. I mean, I guess to some extent you might say that, if we can find ways of being beneficial to that process of assisting, mm. then, yeah. then maybe the worst case scenarios can be avoided. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think uh, if you're uh, familiar with the X-Men series and uh, professor X and his sort of strategy of trying to get the two sides to work together, rather than, you know, Magneto and the other side being at, at odds and trying to destroy each other. I mean, I, I feel like Professor X is the correct choice. I mean, <laughs> either, either, it's either that or, uh, you know, extremely horrible conflict, which will be bad for both sides. And yeah, maybe one right. side will win, but what will they be left with? Uh, you know, it might be not so good. Right. I think that for it's been quite some time now that it's been well understood that there's a mutual assured destruction issue here and uh, Mm -hmm. that calm heads are necessary on all sides. I'm not as familiar with the X-Men thing. I have sort of a vague familiarity with it. I'll have to check into that a little bit more. Uh, It's amazing how deep some of that stuff can be. Oh, I know. It's amazing. Uh, I haven't, I I never really got into it that much. So it's a little bit outside of my reference point, but it's pretty clear that there are some extremely angry people and they are probably our greatest concern. And they often have pretty good reasons to be angry. Yeah, I agree. So, but my, my personal feeling on the solution to that, I mean, I, I recently in the last few years went through an, a very angry phase. Mm. I mean, I don't think I was ever to the point of being destructive, but, kind of my process of going through that and um, interacting with other people who've gone through that is kind of the feeling that that is, that is a problem. People coming from basically a sense of lack, which leads to fear or a fear of lack and acting and feeling out of that. That's when bad things start to happen. But the way to solve that isn't to, you know, fight them, you know, head to head and have a debate and that type of stuff, but really to, solve the problem of why do they feel this sense of lack? Mm. And that's where the human potential comes in because I feel like this sense of lack is not necessary. It's largely illusory, um, an illusion. And uh, once someone feels that and they're able to maintain it, it's just like 
there's, you, I mean, even if you are triggered to go back to that angry place, you just don't want to. You're like, why would I want to go well, I, there? I think that's all very true, but I think at the same time, there is a kind of fundamental lack inherent within existence that the existential crisis is something that has been an aspect of human experience since the beginning, you know? Uh, so, so I, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty familiar with that type of thinking and I think I have felt that way for a long time and I still entertain it. Um, but my feeling at the moment is I don't, I mean, we're basically talking about energy and is there enough energy to go around? And so the question comes down, well, is energy being inserted, you know, into this system? And I, I feel like it is inserted when beings are living in joy. Well, I think there's different so types I don't of think energy. There is that. So, you know, there, yeah. you can still live off of unfavorable energy. You can live off of toxic energy. You can live off of anger. So they say, I think that angry people tend to live longer. <laughs> so is that true? I've heard the opposite. Really? I, well, I, this would yeah. be interesting to look up because yes, I have heard that. I like most things. I have not done the research myself. So it's very difficult mm. for me to really believe any of those types of statements. But, um, but I've known some very angry people who seem to persist beyond the point <laughs> that others might. Yeah. And so it, it makes some sense to me. And having experienced angry energy myself, I also went through, I think I've been through a few phases, but there was one particular phase that was basically like an angry year when I was living in New York <laughs> mm -hmm. that really got me familiar with that energy, you could say. And yeah, it, it can take you over. I could see how someone would get stuck in it. But the point being that there are a variety of different types of energy sources that people can tap into as a... Right. So, of, you know, and so the question is, is there a energy available to everyone that they can all tap into that wouldn't be miserable? That's kind of like the main question on some level because I, I, re I just recently watched the so-called debate between uh, Slavo Žižek and Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you follow that whole scene. But I used to. It's been a while since I followed. It's pretty interesting. And, and one of the kind of main points that Žižek makes is it's all well and good to talk about cleaning up your room and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but context is important as well. So, you know, it means an entirely different thing to say that to someone living in Canada versus saying that to someone living in North Korea. And I think that's very true. And, and there are certainly, it doesn't even have to do with national boundaries. I know there are people living within 10 miles of me. It's like telling them, clean up your room and fix your life is really not a message that's going to work. It just it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, I, I would say that's basically some of us are more ready, not, not necessarily ready like as an individual, but due to our circumstances, we're more ready to do that. And when we do that, we will improve the situation of those other people as well, and then they will be able to do that. So, I mean, but even then, I still think, in that in that worst case scenario you know you can you can still step in, up and do that i mean i i feel like my situation yes. is not much different than 
than being in North Korea. I mean, my my perspective is that government is essentially slavery, and uh, I plan to speak about that as much as I can. And that, I mean, that's that's the same thing as someone stepping up in North Korea and you know p- pointing out what's actually going on. It's not it's not dangerous. I mean, I, it is dangerous, and I'm yes, it is. But dangerous. I still feel like doing that is stepping stepping into my potential. And yeah, it may get me killed, but I don't really see what I mean by human human potential isn't really about making sure I survive. Right. Yeah, I, I see that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's all very good. But if we're going to envision uh, human potential for, you know, we really can't say everyone because we've already basically agreed that there's going to be an evolutionary split and that there are going to be people who join the hive, we'll say, and then there'll be people who are more individually oriented. And then the question is just how are these things going to interface? Mm-hmm. But where's the lack? I don't see lack necessarily lack in either situation. Well, it's going to depend on on the overall conditions. I mean, if environmental conditions continue to degrade, it may be very difficult for people to get enough caloric intake. You know, there may be a lot of okay, so, uh, of displaced people who are in very uncomfortable right. and and dangerous situations. So that's. You know, the, the, the precariousness of life is something that we've somehow or another held at bay in the West, at least, and <laughs> visits us every now and then, and we are certainly aware of it, but it's kind of the normal state of being for most creatures and many humans. So it could well be that if, if we're unable to solve some of the problems that confront us now, that many, many more people are going to get plunged into a relatively chaotic mode of existence. And that would be difficult to maintain a, uh, you know, I think about Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his, his way of confronting the evil that he saw on a daily basis for many years while in the gulags. And it's difficult to imagine how even under the best of circumstances, people would make the right choices. And then, I guess in some respects, they say that the human potential becomes greater as the difficulty increases. But that doesn't mean that some people are are not going to make the worst choices possible because the worst possible things happen in those situations as well. Are you, are you saying people making the worst possible choices in their own lives and largely just affecting themselves and those around them, or do you mean like affecting globally? Well, it goes both ways. It depends on your position of, of power, where you are within the hierarchy. Mm. Uh, but there are points where people do make terrible decisions for themselves that affect many other people. And depending on where they are in social hierarchy, that can ricochet out through the whole world. Yeah, I, mean, I think it ricochets out through all the war, through the whole universe, uh, even if if we in relatively low positions of of hierarchy. Yeah. So it seems to me like the, I mean, the kind of the core of this. I wouldn't call it a disagreement, but uh, us coming to understand each other is is lack inherent, right? I mean. To, let's just talk about humanity in general. I mean, maybe we need to expand it beyond that. But um, my, my experience when looking at humanity is that lack is not inherent. We have the potential for abundance and an abundance for everyone. I mean, and this is in terms of food, healthy food, 
and also in terms of you know energy in terms of electricity and things like that well my response so, I mean, would be that yeah we're in a or current potential is not actuality so that, yes we can see that there's right. a potential but that doesn't mean that it's real that doesn't mean that it's a realistic picture in other words in, in nature we see that there are are many spiders born and few survive for long mm -hmm. so each of those spiders has the potential to be one of the ones who lasts for a long time, but most of them don't. And that's basically the case in, in all species. Well, I'd say most, I wouldn't, I don't think I would agree with all. Okay. Uh, I'll buy that. It seems to be the case with humans. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the, my key disagreement. I mean, I feel like, I mean, what, what do you see as the core sources of lack? Cause I see there's food, and yeah, if you look at our current system of providing food for people, if we stay on that path, then yes, you're right. But that we don't need to stay on that path. And there's plenty of people. You could say it's government if you want. I mean, that was the way that you characterized it before. I'm not quite sure that that I would characterize it that way, but it's a, a decent way of referring to the system of controls. I ultimately wouldn't say it's government. I think it's um, people's willingness to give up responsibility. Well, that's, that's sort what of government what government essentially is. is. You know, yeah, so yeah. basically people are giving up something of their self-autonomy for some kind of safety, probably, mostly. Yeah. Benefits mm -hmm. or out of fear. Mm -hmm. you know, all kind of related things. But you could say that in general, when you have very large populations, if they are all, if every individual is operating on the basis of their own autonomous urges and impulses, it's going to be relatively incoherent. Um, and so the social organizations that we've developed that have become ever more complex and uh, controlling and invasive, these are to some extent a natural consequence of population pressures. Because how are you going to manage a city if everyone is basically following their bliss? Well, people, first of all, don't need to live in cities. We don't, we don't need cities. So we're going to distribute 8 billion people across the face of this earth without completely destroying what's left of it? <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say yes, that's a, that is a, and I think we'll probably get up to, you know, a higher population than that. And I think we'll be, we will be able to sustain that. I mean, I've heard things where you, if you put everyone on the entire planet in a, in a pretty small region of the earth and gave them quite a bit of space and, you know, enough space to really feed themselves that that could work. And then you still have the, the whole entire rest of the planet. So I mean, I don't, I don't think the population is a problem. And then another thing about population is that it's, it's likely going to hit 10 billion around there. And then it's going to decline as, as more countries become, I don't know, more affluent, uh, like places like Japan, when Japan's a little unique, but in other places, first world countries, birth rates are declining. And it, it's going to be a very huge problem. I think we should be worried about depopulation more than we're worried about over. Mm. Well, I definitely disagree with that. I think uh, I think that because of the resource depletion that's necessary in order to 
to support the population as it is. Uh, we are a species that is uh, extremely disruptive. And well, but that's, that's assuming we use the current system of, of feeding ourselves. Well, that's true, but we also have to recognize that as times get more difficult, there's maybe more incentive to try something new, but it's less possible to do something new because you're in more of an emergency mode. So, and I think the emergency really, mode actually is what encourages you to do the, the things that are new. I mean, if, if you yeah, can't buy food at a grocery level. store, you're going to grow stuff in your, in your backyard and you'll, you'll be able to grow more food than you need. And every, everyone who's doing it will be able to grow more than they need. But we're talking about um, very large decisions on a, on a very large scale. You basically have to retool the entire economy. And I think that we're already in such a contentious situation in the mainstream uh, dialogue that it would be almost impossible to get a change through that would, what? you know. I think the current economy... I don't think there's any sense in trying to salvage it. I mean, it's going to fall. And what we need is the things which will be there when it, when it does that. Well, in order to have something that would actually be able to support the populations that will be thrown to the wind when it does fall, uh, we would have to have an extraordinary amount of uh, infrastructure in place. That right, and that to... definitely wouldn't be there. It definitely wouldn't be there when the fall occurred, or it's very unlikely that it would be. But that that will then be the thing which pushes that to grow, because those seeds are already out there. I mean, I, I, I spend my life living on farms that focus on permaculture and abundance and those type of things, and even making producing videos for them where they're educating people. And I mean, I, th these things are all over the place. I mean, they're just ready to to feel the need and to teach others how to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the question of course is how do you deal with that transition time? And it's, you know, <laughs> well, it'll be, it'll be ugly. It's going to be ugly, man. <laughs> it probably will be. Yeah. But, but there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that can be done to prevent it. I mean, all we can do is try and get those things in place as much as possible before it happens. Mm. Uh, there's a part of me that feels that really at the bottom of all of this is just uh, a faith in God and allowing oneself to be kind of cast to the winds and fortune will, will take its, its, uh, its path mm. irrespective of what we do. There's, I think that maybe the Taoist in me thinks that intention has a tendency to go awry and, uh, so our, we can always, of course, do our best, but to actually have a plan that we feel is something that we're going to adhere to is perhaps just wishful thinking. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you that intention of a certain kind consistently will go awry. But, uh, I mean, you brought up God. I, I tend not to call it God, though I was, I'm essentially saying the same thing. I like to say creator. Um but I feel like there's, it's hard to explain, but there's a way of intending, which is in alignment with the intention of the creator. And when that's the case, then, then it's not true that it's going to lead you astray. Well, the, the question is whether it's uh, individual intention then. Uh, I think that the alignment with the creator, which is actually kind of the subject of the last two Assembly of Silence radio hour episodes, it's mm -hmm. uh, 
an analysis of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And the concept is basically how does the individual unify with, uh, I'll say, the creator. And um, from that point of view, I think it's safe to say that when there is no distinction, then there is no individual sense of being. Therefore, uh, individual intention dissolves into the intention of the creator and, the, and follows the creation. So I... I mean, I, so I've spent a lot of time in Buddhist monasteries. I'm actually currently at one. Mm -hmm. um, I intended to be a monk when I was 20 and spent a year training to do that. And I mean, I, I, I know what is meant when people, the, the self drops away and all that's left is it, you know, the, the only thing that can be known. Uh, and yeah, in that sense, whatever's happening and whatever you do is in alignment with it but i would say that's not the ideal state the ideal state would be embracing your individual individuality and embracing your self and your personality your uniqueness and aligning that with the creator so bringing the ego back into it but aligning them mm -hmm. yeah i actually agree with you uh i I love the Taoist, Buddhist, Hindu tradition, and I feel there's a lot of great value in it, but I do feel like it's missing the personal relationship with God that you see from the Abrahamic tradition. And I do mm -hmm. kind of feel like each of us are born and have a destiny and that our job is to fulfill it and not to cop out. So if that, if that resonates with what you're saying, then I think we agree on yeah. that. Um, yeah, totally. And, and I've, I've most of my life, I mean, I feel like I've always had a sense for what that purpose for me is, you know, ever since I was born, but all these other ideas come in from outside and maybe even from inside about doing other things. And when I, when I'm following that, it always turns out wrong. And I always feel sort of dead inside. So and the other I things throw it away eventually. Would it be fair to characterize the other things as being what kind of superego concerns, uh, what society is expecting, and the kind of um, the currency of social capital and all that? Yeah, I would. I would say probably most, if not all, of it is um, external. You know, expecting the external world expecting things of you. Right. And that external world consists not only of human institutions and family institutions, but also to some extent of nature itself. That there right. Are my, my situation, the world expects me to eat if I want to continue, continue to survive. It's quite annoying, isn't it? Yeah, what a, what a nuisance. <laughs> takes so much time just to do that. <laughs> there is that dude who apparently has, you know, lived uh, to the ripe old age of 80-something on nothing but an occasional sip of water who they observed uh, a number of years ago for a few weeks. And he just sort of sat and meditated and had more energy than the researchers supposedly. Again, this is just a story. Yep. I wasn't there, but the idea, yeah. is well, there's, it really would be something else if it turned out that we actually didn't need to eat, at least not eat as much as we yeah. do. 
it seems like it's obvious yeah, this, true that we don't really need to eat as much as we do, particularly in the West, this, particularly here in America. This kind of gets into what Judah talked about. I think it was in his his speech that he gave. I think he uh-huh. played one of his speeches. Nourishing. Basically, that we're in taking right. We're, our food is not just our food. Our food is our sense experience. Basically, any form of energy which is entering into our mm-hmm. system is nourishment and. and Right, and I, I believe, I personally believe it is possible to live with a minimal amount of food. I mean, if we're just talking about energy, I think that we can get basically all of our energy from other sources, and it can, it can really vary. You have to optimize your system towards one, but oxygen would be one, mm-hmm. sunlight would be another, um, you know, it's just a st- structured water, like finding ways to structure water within yourself by being like on a vibration plate or just being in infrared Lots of different things, and I really don't think we need food uh, beyond... Perhaps union with the creator. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean by there's not really a lack of energy because the creator injects energy into, basically, I'd say, into people who are living in their potential, who are following their path. There's no doubt that when it comes to finding an amicable way of of developing a a relationship with the hive that would work well, if you weren't requiring what they would consider as caloric intake, (laughs) that would probably, that would probably be a good start. Oh yeah. I mean, but really like if I think about it, where, where I'm sitting right now, there's probably within 200 feet of me enough food for me to eat for like a week or maybe Uh even a month. I mean, just dandelions by themselves have pretty much everything you need. It has starch, it has all the vitamins, and it also has sugars in it. And they're everywhere. Yeah, they're actually pretty delicious. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Particularly the ones that don't have the, the, the furry spikes on them. Oh, that's a different, that's not actually a dandelion. But yeah, you can eat those as well. Huh. Interesting. So the dandelion is the one with the furry spikes? No, without I guess that people have found ways of eating things and surviving that one would not normally think of as even an option. Yeah. At least not today. I mean, because we've never really, most, nobody knows how to forage. I mean, people don't even think about it. If there's not food in the supermarket, they would be like, well, how am I going to eat? I'm going to die. Right. It's like, well, there's food everywhere. But no one, no one realizes it. Well, it's interesting when you compare what I'm familiar with in the United States versus somewhere like Thailand, which we went to for mm. a little while. In Thailand, there's food growing everywhere. Yeah. And it's just an incredible abundance. In the United States, there are definitely food deserts where there's, there's just not much. You know, yeah, okay, if you're an experienced forager, you could probably find some mushrooms here or there. You may know which bark of the trees are edible. But compared to a place like Thailand where there's fruits everywhere and vegetables everywhere, it's it's too, you know, we don't see that as much here, but we could. It seems to me that yeah, there's plenty of variable land. A lot of it has been messed up. You know, that mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the, you know, lowland valleys, r- river yeah. floodplains and stuff like that, that's yeah. pretty messed up. But we really do have a lot of uncontaminated soil in, you know, the foothills and all that. Type. I mean, there's, there's in, my, in my view, we have so much good land still. 
Well, then the, the question becomes when we're talking about, you know, human potential and we have this branching of humanity, then who's going to have access to these places that are, that still have this potential within them. That's something that, uh, that I'm, I'm somewhat concerned about because, you know, on, an, on, on some other level, there's a third component here because there are people who have accumulated a vast amount of power and wealth and technological advantage. You could say these are the managers of the hive, perhaps. Yep, yep. Or they will be, they will have their controls over managers of the hives. And there may be several different groups of these people who will be at war with each other because they play that game. They're, they're kind of uh, into dominating. Right. So I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's basically one of the major problems. But the, I think the key thing to realize there is that they're the minority. Yeah, that's true. And if the, if the majority, which, is, which goes to my goal of helping people to, you know, start focusing on themselves and becoming the best version of themselves, because the more people do that, I mean, once enough of people are doing that, these other people, they, I mean, the only reason they have power is because we give them the power. And when it's, people stop doing that, then that problem is solved. Well, I, I don't see it that way. The reason why they have power is because they've taken power. And to some extent, yes, we've allowed them to do that, but they have done it now. And they have an incredible amount of power. And my sense is that most people will probably not change until it's too late. Like, I think most people will be, cap <laughs> will be captured by the hive and, and that those who, are, who have escaped are going to be few and far between in comparison with those who are uh, wrapped up in, in this whole thing. So, it, yeah, I, I mean, I see, that, I see that going the same way as well, but my sense is once people see the darkness, once they see the reason why it sucks, more of them come out. Well, you then, then I mean? we have the void again. And, and, you know, avoiding the void is something that humanity is super good at. So we're really good at creating distractions and um, <laughs> spectacles and various things to keep ourselves from feeling how we feel. So, the, mm -hmm. you know, people may realize that things are really heading towards a dark place, but damn it, there's so much good shit on YouTube now, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think that's going to run out, man. It ran out for me anyway. I, agree. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff to see. And yeah, virtual reality will come out. And I mean, that may even catch me for a decade or two. But well, I, just, I mean, I feel we're like still interacting. it'll get old. We're doing it right now. We're on this thing, you know. Well, we're using it, but we're not obsessed with it. No, we're not obsessed with it in the same We're not distracting way. ourselves with it. I mean, I, I, I was obsessed with it for quite a long time, and I've absorbed a shitload of information, and I have kind of gotten to the point where, like, okay, I got it. You know, like, yeah. I really don't need to hear a hell of a lot of it anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But now I'm producing stuff, and I have, I have to admit I am somewhat ambivalent about it because, I mean, it's not as if the world needs more shit up on the Internet, but I do feel a urge to share the thoughts that I've and, and observations that I've come to 
as a result of going through the whole process. And I do have a feeling that there is this potential for connectivity between like-minded people and to kind of work out some of these differences and, and get a fresh perspective. And I think all of that is extremely important and wonderful, but I am concerned that it's all happening within basically the context of the national security state, <laughs> you know, which sort of, yeah. you know, obliterates the, yeah. you know, quite often in order for something to really take off, it needs to hibernate in its own little world without being observed, you know? So the observational aspect of it all, I find to be troubling. It seems like that is probably something that if, if anything upsets the hive's point of view, they're probably going to use some resources to deal with it. You know, it's just what they do. But they are limited in what they can do. I mean, yeah, they can take people out. Yeah, they can destroy people's lives, but there's a, there's a limit to how much they can do that before people start noticing. And of course, people are always going to notice, but the amount of people that notice increases the more that you do it. So you have to be careful about how much of that you do. And then there's the, you know, brute force, which, and you're always having to balance the fact that you're commanding soldiers who, you know, deep down have a, you know, a heart. And um, also you're dealing with the fact that, I mean, yeah, we, we just spent a bunch of time baiting a bunch of Middle Eastern countries who we'd all think are pretty unsophisticated and uh, don't really have a lot of military might, but we are sure having a lot of trouble there. Mm. Well, I'm, so I'm it seems afraid like there's I'm a, a really off limit pessimist when it comes to this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my sense of it is that because money talks, you know, and unfortunately most people have a very difficult time getting to the point where they won't make decisions based on money. But money really is, we do all require money in order to, to feed ourselves and to have any kind of level of existence now, which is just a terrible crime, but it's a fact. And mostly uh, true. I wouldn't call it a hundred percent true, but yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. There are probably exceptions to just about everything, but in general, that's the condition that most people are living with. And so you can get people to do just about anything for the right amount of money. And there are, are people who have so much anger and hatred for so many different reasons that mm-hmm. it's not that difficult to put together an army to go against any group of people. All you got to do is find the opposite group. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and that's super yeah. to do now. Yeah. Divide, divide and conquer. I mean, too. I think you're, you're right. Uh, just just quickly to cover the other thing before I forget it, I've already half forgotten it, so let's see if I can pull it back. Um, the idea that that when people notice, then something will happen, it's sort of like, okay, if you follow the arc of that, it's like, yeah, okay, Gandhi, right? They noticed, <laughs> and, and it really made a change, you know? And then Mandela and that kind of a thing, it's like, yeah, okay, people noticed, and then it's kind of like as you go along, it seems like, well, okay, yeah, they get noticed and maybe it's more like a song would be written about them or something like that. It's like, it didn't, it didn't quite work out at Standing Rock, you know, like um, Julian well, Assange and, uh, and uh, Edward Snowden. It's like, well, you know, yeah, yeah people noticed, we, but it doesn't seem to be working out. So, right. you know, it's, I, I feel right, like- Right, but we're just, we're looking at the beginning. I feel know. like it's turned into spectacle. It's turned more and more into spectacle. So the, the capacity for 
the fact of something being revealed to actually change the the situation has been eroded because there's just so much information and people are kind of somewhat suspicious of all of it and this kind of relativism out there and i think also a great deal of um despondency because you know bernie uh, is just one example of people really getting their hopes up that something could be done differently and realizing mm -hmm. that you know what even though most of us wanted to do that they just completely fucked us and and said you know what you don't count like we just don't care it's a we're the democratic party we don't practice democracy fuck you all you know i wasn't even a right. Bernie supporter but it just was such an outrage that that was the democratic attitude and everyone's basically swallowed it you know we're kind of sort of going through it again now it's it's going to be interesting to see so so to kind of tie it back, and I hope I get this right, I can't actually remember which side chose this, but uh, I think in one of your, maybe even the last episode that you did, you were talking about there was a war going on and there's two people at Krishna's bed and it was, you know, they both, one person got to choose first, right? right. Uh, whether they had Krishna's army or they had Krishna. Yeah. And again, I don't really remember who chose what, but I'm, I, I mean, I feel like to cut through the chase of this all, I feel like we have Krishna on our side. And so I I, I'm not, I'm not really worried about it. What's that? <laughs> I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, that was Arjuna. Arjuna, uh, was the, the, f he managed to get to Krishna's bedside and was the one that Krishna saw when he awoke. Mm -hmm. And so I think Krishna which, gave him the first, which story. one was Arjuna though? Arjuna is... Arjuna's the bad dude, right? No. No, Arjuna's... <laughs> no, he's a good guy. Okay. He's the one who's having the dialogue with Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. And right, but what's his relationship to the other person who's also like, at the bedside? Yeah, now I wish I could remember the name, but basically you have... Uh, he is one of the five sons, the Pandavas, who are, have been increasingly pushed out of the kingdom by um, their father's blind brother if i remember it's like their uncle and i can't remember mm -hmm. his name but he is the the blind king uh who has a hundred sons and one of his sons in particular is particularly uh um evil spirited you could say mm -hmm. so the war has kind of already been it's a fait accompli it just nothing has broken out yet the battling hasn't begun Right. And so they, they both sides go to Krishna for help. That's the story. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a terrible, very interesting, it's kind of related to something we just spoke about. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it might be interesting to consider for a moment that Zizek in, in this debate with Peterson mentions that I think it's Himmler in the Nazi party carried a copy of the Bhagavad Gita with him at all times. Because oh, it helped wow. do terrible deeds. What? But, yeah. Wow. It's fascinating when you think about this. It's like. Is that the way he thought about it? Who? Himmler. Is he like, ooh, this is helping me do terrible deeds? I think so. I, I think, I really think. Really? Wow. That is, that is what he thought about Gross. it. And it, and it gets oh. back to what we were talking about earlier, where the relinquishing of the individual self and the perishing of the will of that self, right, handed over to the divine self, can be used in a perverse way 
as mm. an excuse for doing whatever the hell you could read the Bhagavad Gita as a military propaganda manual for its warriors. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, don't worry. Yeah. It's imperishable. That, you just got to go fight and do your duty. Okay. And then you're going to yep. be at one with God. So get out there, buddy, <laughs> do your job. You know, it, it yeah. probably was in many respects used that way. So, yeah. How do you know when, if you are, if your will is in alignment with the creator, there's no real guarantee that you're not in alignment with the aspect of the creator, which is the destroyer. That's and, true. Uh, so, I mean, that's a real, da that's a real see, danger. It's a real danger. And of course, see, I think this is where self-sacrifice comes in, you know, mm. because you got to be, you know, if what you think you're supposed to do is for your advantage, <laughs> you know, it gets trickier when we're talking about family and, and nation and culture, right? Because yeah. mm -hmm. the kind of self-sacrifice that's necessary to protect family, nation, and culture is the kind of self-sacrifice that often involves doing terrible shit to other people who might want to take down your family, your nation, your culture. So it's just right. not that simple, you know, but... I do think it gets back to the thing that we were talking about before where the depersonalization in the East kind of lends itself to that. I mean, you see the same thing happening in the West, though. Of course, the Crusades were all done in the name of God, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a yeah. similar type of, you know, the onward Christian soldier, that type of a thing. But I think that the personalization aspect of it does lead towards a greater sense of personal responsibility and that relativism that comes from um, relinquishing sense of self is less convincing when, when you're a dedicated, you know, because Jesus really was, you know, put your sword aside, you know, the Prince of peace. There are some passages. Well, there's, there's quotes that he says where it's not quite, I mean, it's basically the opposite of that too. That's true, but you could also think of that as being a metaphor because he was basically... Well, you could think of the other one as being a metaphor as well. I mean, you're basically choosing which one you want to say he was not being metaphorical about. Right. That's true. Well, he's, he certainly preferred parables. So he wasn't yeah. someone who spoke literally. Mm. And of course there are some problems with the texts. <laughs> we, <laughs> oh, yeah. we, don't, we don't exactly know who got their hands yeah. on what. And, you know, I think particularly when it gets into the Gospels that were created later and the other books of the New Testament, there are some problematic aspects to it. But in essence, the message does seem to be one of peace and of self-sacrifice. I mean, self-sacrifice in a way that goes beyond what most people could comprehend when it comes to self-sacrifice right so so to use my own story as an example i mean in a way especially if i'm not careful what i'm doing is self-sacrificial and at the same time i feel i'm doing it for myself hmm. and um and not only just because if i succeed the world will be a better place for me and the people i care about but because it fulfills something inside of me. Right. And so I would feel dead if I were not doing that. 
I think this is an expression of the concept that the spiritual and material domains are in inverse relationship to each other. And that when we place ourselves in material jeopardy, it, fulfill, it fills us spiritually. And converse is true as well. When we attempt to secure things for ourselves materially, the spiritual light diminishes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I think it comes down to, I mean, with basically everything we're talking about, even back to the hive and the individualism, it comes back to what Buddhism calls the middle way, which is the universe is, it's not one or the other, it's one or the other, it's, it's both. And the, um, the back and forth of that is necessary. Um, but to minimize harm and to maximize joy, uh, you have to be careful about swinging too hard to one side. Right. Yeah, there's another uh, way of saying that, that I've heard from the Rosicrucian tradition that the middle path they describe as being Christic, that Christ was walking that path between mm. an embodied being and spiritual light, and that one who would dedicate themselves fully to the spiritual light without considering the uh, material world is a Luciferian. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the Satwa uh, Guna of Hindu Hinduism. And what one would cons one who considers the, the material domain without, con without consideration for the spiritual is a Satanist. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard it put quite this way. I'm trying to remember the teacher that I heard that from. It was one of the YouTube videos I watched <laughs> about mm -hmm. Rosicrucianism a long time ago. It's a neat it, way of, of, of mm -hmm. describing that balance, I think. Mm -hmm. could, you, could you state the Luciferian again? Because I, I think I missed that. I didn't comprehend it when you said it. It's the inverse of the satanic. It's where the spiritual light is considered the only thing worth anything and mm -hmm. all of the material concerns are completely ignored. Mm. Yeah, divorce is the material from the spiritual. It's kind of what we were talking about before where uh, you could use the Bhagavita as a manual for genocide. Mm -hmm. So by detaching oneself from material existence, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the kind of ultimate relativistic point of being. The fact that he had to carry it around with him at all times probably means that he needed to be reconvinced of this on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah. To me suggests, that to me suggests the imbalance of this... Uh, <laughs> luciferian world you know that, that mm -hmm. they have their reasons and what have you and it's all very exciting and very big-minded but it's missing mm -hmm. a crucial component which is mother nature it's it's missing just the most basic aspect of love and care for yeah. uh for creation and and a far yeah. better solution would be to sacrifice the self if you truly wanted to improve the situation. <laughs> well, I, again, I would say 
I would say to a degree, not complete sacrifice. Well, I guess it depends on the context. It depends on the circumstance. Yeah, I obviously, I, I agree with that, but I do think there are, are circumstances where the ultimate sacrifice may be necessary. You know, God willing, it doesn't get to that point. But, <laughs> but surely it has gotten to that point many times for many, oh, yeah. many people throughout, throughout history. So it's, uh, it's perhaps if we can be prepared for that, then we're prepared for anything. Well, I think that's one of the valuable things that comes from going to that one side completely of giving up ego and seeing what's actually true at least for a moment, because you realize that ultimately you'll always come back to that. So there's, there's a safety. I'm just curious, how would you characterize what's ultimately true? (laughs) Well, you call it, uh, I think phenomenon is occurring and I I basically (laughs) say the same thing, but I feel like I'll use less syllables and I say, this is happening. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you about that. In fact, I would say that's the only thing that we know with complete certainty. Um, but I don't think that means that nothing is true, which is the mistake that I think a lot of people make when they reach that point. Yeah, I think that's the same kind of relativism that leads to, you know, the kind of uh, Himmler point of view, you could say. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, totally. Has the potential to lead yep. to that. So it's amazing just how many dangerous uh, paths there are when you start to really think about stuff. Yeah, and I'll tell you, man, I like talking about, I mean, several times during this conversation, we've talked about the the dark side and in a way being aligned with an aspect of the creator and maybe even is a necessary part of the story that that continues to play out. And um, I have this fear in myself that I, you know, somehow stumble and end up being in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, really, the only way I see that happening is if I end up with um, something I can't, I can't stand to lose, and uh, that makes me think children. So mm-hmm. I just feel like, oof, I would be children would be certainly dangerous for someone walking the path I'm walking because I feel like. Um, I could be very, very destructive given that motivation. Well, I think that explains an awful lot of what goes on in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, of course, completely understandable. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think the question of, of whether or not to have children is something that seems to be of paramount importance right now. A lot of people are really struggling with it. Yeah. My wife and I have always agreed that we're, we're not going to have kids, and, and we're pretty happy with that. Uh, I would say, however, that when you don't have children, the question as to why you're here becomes an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I've gone through phases like that. And a part of me wonders, and I know lots of other people who come to that conclusion, and my sense is always, okay, you're saying that, and that conclusion's coming from a pretty intellectual or a head-based perspective, but I don't feel like the people generally actually deeply 
align with it. Like they want children, especially women. Yes. And when they maybe forego it and they convince themselves not to. And then by the time they realize that they've made a mistake, it's too late. I think that's true in many cases, but I also think there are genuine exceptions. Yeah. But yes, it does appear that there is a, uh, a very deeply rooted biological imperative that you just can't reason your way out of uh, easily. But mm-hmm. it is, a, I think, a real big question. I'm, I'm less sanguine about the population issue than you are. I, I think that we're really in trouble with the carrying capacity of the earth. And I, I think we would... Well, we would can we talk a little bit about that? I, I mean, so um, I think I, I talked a bit about my beliefs about what's possible in terms of infrastructure. And yeah, things could probably have to go to a dark place before there's real motivation to build those new systems. But I don't think that's all there is to the population problem. I mean, if we just talk about health, for example, the what a mother does while her daughter or yeah, her daughter is in her uterus and growing directly is affecting her granddaughter. And so we have these effects where when people are being poisoned or living lives in which the mitochondria are suboptimal that that is not just passed down to the daughter immediately it is passed down to the granddaughter immediately and we are because the because the egg is in the fetus the egg of the granddaughter is in the fetus so that's a direct thing and so it takes a little bit for us to see the long-term effects of mass poisoning of the population not just in food but air water um you know just sensory inputs but I mean, I think we're going to we're going to see mass infertility very soon. Well, that and sounds to that's, me that's like just an another argument. reason why I'm not. That's an argument for reducing the population. I, I know you're saying, okay, that's no, it's, a, it's an argument that the population will reduce, right? Without us, you know, trying to reduce it, right? But the problem also is that the reason that we've gotten to this point, you know, if you think of just humanity as an organism that has inputs and outputs in the same way that the anaerobic bacteria had outputs that were toxic to it, we have Mm -hmm. massive outputs that are, I mean, just our effluence alone is more than the natural system can handle. And then add all the chemicals and various industrial processes that, that we uh, are churning out. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. just an unbelievable burden on on the natural world. So, yeah, I mean, if, if um, fertility levels decrease, if we see things like uh, what's happening in Japan where there's less interest in having children, then it seems like, yeah, the natural tendency will be for things to taper. I'm not sure whether or not that trend line will happen in time, <laughs> but it does seem like, yeah, it's likely that we're gonna, we're gonna level off here at some point. Mm-hmm. And then couple that with changed infrastructure. I mean, if we can manage that, and yeah, that's a big that's a big task. But that goes to what I mean by human potential. If if we want all these things to happen, individuals who are inspired to do these things need to actually do them. Yeah, and and not sit and entertain themselves. You know, 
just wait to die. Yeah, no, I think it, it, there are definitely some possibilities that are worth exploring without a doubt. Um, and way better than doing many of the other things that might be done. But not entirely clear that any of them will produce the desired <laughs> result. Um, well, that's that's in, uh, I, I mean, if we're going to go back to Krishna, I say that's in Krishna's hands. I mean, basically all we can do is, in, as individuals is say, okay, if I'm going to live in the world that I want to live in, what would I have to have done? What would my role have had to have been? And then do that. And you're basically voting to live in a, a universe where, since you do that, you, that, you live in a universe where people do that, thus other people are going to do it. And I actually feel like you, you kind of do pull yourself into almost a parallel, like, I don't know, timeline or existence in a way. Mm-hmm. When you do that, you, you make the choice to say, well, I'm going to do what's right, what I know is right, which what brings me joy and which is going to help us all out in the long run, even though it looks completely and totally dire. And that's where the faith is. I'll do my part and I leave the rest to the creator. So uh, in, in your particular instance, what, what does that consist of? Doing my part? <laughs> Oh, so many facets to that. Uh, well, I don't know how much you've watched of what I'm doing, but um, I could tell you exactly what I watched. I watched um, the Astral Projection okay. video, the one on codependency, <laughs> uh, achieving financial freedom. Uh, the so one you watched Ask Callan, right? Basically, yes, sounds like. And I watched one of the um, Nomad Life, How to Increase uh-huh. Survival with Fractals. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's really more of what I'm doing. Um, I mean, the Ask Callan thing is just kind of a way for me to speak freely about things, um, uh-huh. to do it in, in large in bulk. But uh, I feel like the larger part of what I'm doing is just kind of demonstrating to people what's possible. And at first, I started by moving into a yurt on a mm-hmm. permaculture farm mm-hmm. um, while I was you know, working as a producer in the tech industry on AAA video games. Hmm. And then, you know, eventually, like, like, so there was videos about that, and that's demonstrating that step for people. If people are ready for that kind of step, it's helping to encourage them and show them, you know, th- problems and good things about it. And then I've kind of gone through phases where I've become more and more minimalist, r- representing d- different stages that people could take. Uh, one would be living in my truck, and I did that for a year, just kind of oh. roaming around, living on public land. And I just sold my truck, and now I'm basically... I've made a solar electric bike, which huh. I could travel. I've expanded the battery and I can basically travel probably a hundred miles on a single charge. Wow. And, it, and it's fat tires and it can go on, you know, trails up in the mountains and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I basically can go all these places that nobody can go. I can carry a month's worth of food with me and I can leave my bike out for a couple of days and I can go a hundred miles again. Huh. And you know, that's not, that's not perfectly clean in terms of, um, you know, earth and stuff like that. It's still using lithium. Right. Uh, mining lithium is not a good thing, but I'm not, I'm no longer contributing to uh, gasoline, which I feel like is probably a bigger problem. Mm. Hmm. So anyways, I just feel like I'm sharing my life and sharing like my joy and how, how, how much this fulfills me with people to, as a way to inspire them. So in, in some respects, you're 
giving people a uh, a game plan for detaching themselves from the the hive in essence right if we're going to object if we're going to object to what is uh what the system is becoming then we have to stop feeding it and in order to do that we have to learn how to live without it right right find alternatives yeah, it's fascinating. It's really wonderful. I think it's very admirable. And I really like your whole approach. Thank you. I also watched the video of you practicing the sitar, which, uh, <laughs> which was fun. You watched the whole thing? I, no, I didn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't think anyone's probably watched that whole thing. <laughs> but my brother played sitar, so uh, there's oh, a little nice. resonance there. Um, it's a mm. beautiful instrument, and I love that music, even oh, though yeah. I don't really understand it that well. Yeah, it's uh, magical. I feel like we're kind of uh, reaching the end of our uh, natural cycle. There's something that I wanted to mention to you initially that I forgot to mention, which is I guess you are familiar with. In the Assembly of Silence, we have the Assembly of Silence moment where <laughs> <laughs> where we get transported yep. into a realm of whistles and clicks. So um, mm -hmm. we've hit that moment. Wait, does it have to be whistles and clicks? It could be whatever the hell you think will be good in a very long reverb. Whoa. When we were recording it, we, I had a, a mixing console with a reverb on it, so I'd just throw it in there and we'd hear it as we were doing it. But I don't have that technology here with the Zoom thing. I'll have to see if I can figure out a way to do that. But we can, or mm. I can just, I can insert my own assembly of silence moment. But if you'd like to participate in assembly of silence moment, I feel like we've, we've gotten oh, it. Please. Right. It would be, a, it would be an honor. Now, here we go. Beautiful. Well, this has been a real pleasure. And, uh, and yeah, I feel like we have, uh, I actually feel like we have a lot more to talk about. So I do too. Yeah. if you are interested, yeah, I, I would be happy to come on again. Great. So just let, just let me know. All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks. So thanks again for doing this. And I look forward to the next time. You bet. See you next time. Man. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>